Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And I'm joined by a very special guest, D.A. Horton. Welcome, D.A. What's up, man? Thank you for having me here, sis. <laughs> thank you for being here. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Man, born and raised in Kansas City, on the Kansas side, the real side. Uh, 18th Street, USD 500 stand up. Uh, but that's where I'm from. My wife is from the Missouri side across the river. Okay. So we met at a young age. Uh, I was like 10. She was 8. So mm-hmm. we've been married now. Fast forward for 12 years. Congratulations. Man, thank you. It's been a joy. <laughs> She's my best friend. She's my homie. And uh, she went through Bible college and seminary with me, man. And she got two master's degrees. So like she's beasting it. Um, so we went to Calvary Bible College uh, to do our undergrad work, Calvary Theological Seminary to do our master's work. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now I am uh, pursuing a Ph.D. in applied theology with a North American missions emphasis at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. All right. That's what's up. And you know my uh, friend there, Walter. That's Strickland. the homie. Walter Strickland, <laughs> so the big shout homie. Shout out to uh, Walter if you're listening. Cheer. Uh, he's helping me get some stuff done with you, so I'm excited about the That's partnership. Good. That's good. Um, so um, we want to talk about uh, millennials and apologetics. Okay. So, um, so tell us what do you see as the major issues as far as black millennials and apologetics? Like what what movements or things do you need? You think we need to be dealing with? You know what's amazing to me is a lot of the statistics and demographics that are put out about millennials exclude ethnic minorities. So you'll hear all these trends about millennials, that, 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 millennials, that. I'm like, yo, every millennial that I know is not fitting that profile. Then I begin to recognize that the studies are more Anglo. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just like, yo, when are we going to get some social demographics that are pertinent to the minority community? Because a lot of people are like the rise of the nuns and things like that. But I'm like, there's a lot of black and Latinos that were raised in the church or at least the Catholic church for Latino environment. And I'm like, man, looking at that, I'm like, there's some trends that I'm seeing is that there's almost this uh, an awakening of sorts to ethnic identity, um, almost resemblance if you will, to the to the civil rights era, if you will, mm-hmm. in our generation, just because of the, the tensions that are going on today mm-hmm. in our nation, videos going viral, police brutality. Um, man, I'm seeing people by the droves begin to look for their ethnic identity in the scriptures if they're mm-hmm. contemplating Christianity mm-hmm. or those that have been enveloped in Christianity and raised in the church, whether they're uh, regenerate or not. They're beginning to ask questions like, yo, why, why does my pastor only quote from dudes from Europe? Or mm-hmm. how come nobody's ever told me the North African history of the Christian faith like Augustine and Cyprian and Athanasius? Like these dudes, how come I'm not hearing that they were North African? And so you begin to wrestle through some of those quandaries. And I think millennials are seeking, um, number one, just affirmation of identity. Mm-hmm. And that's where it can be uh, very beneficial if it's gospel center that's expressed to them that, yo, God has sovereignly elected you to be the ethnicity you are. So mm-hmm. celebrate that. Don't let it be an idol, but don't ignore it. Mm-hmm. But celebrate who he has called, called you to be. But at the same time, with your identity in Christ, now you are part of a spiritual ethnicity, which is the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. So walking in that balance of appreciating ethnic identity and appreciating spiritual ethnicity as well, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the reality that I'm in the body of Christ. So I think that being unpacked with uh, the three T's that I say, truth, transparency, and transformation. Mm-hmm. Millennials, we, we, we were searching for truth, mm-hmm. and we can find the source of all truth in the scriptures, unapologetically, mm-hmm. it's the word of God. Um, secondly is transparent. Millennials lead with authenticity. Mm-hmm. That is the, uh, that's, that's the apologetic cry of our generation, mm-hmm. is that we want to know what's real. Be Square biz, real talk with me, like for real, for real. What is real? Mm -hmm. And so I think unpacking God's present tense work in our lives to Mm -hmm. millennials helps them understand if God is working 
out his plan of redemption through still unredeemed human beings that have unredeemed flesh but mm-hmm. were in Christ, then they can see a real-time example of sanctification progressively in their midst. So I think that transparency mixed with the truth allows the Holy Spirit to do the supernatural transformative work that only he can do to non-believers. And I think that's important as far as African-American millennials want to see themselves in our theological writers in see themselves in the text absolutely um, because um in jesus and it is inherited by howard thurman he says the most one of the most crucial issues for black america is that we be affirmed as children of god that's it yeah and that's so important because when that is pushed on us the whole idea of white jesus yeah. or yeah. you know those kinds of concepts you grow up thinking that way and then you're like well i'm different you know yeah. i'm not a part of you know the image of God. Sure. You know? And and in fact, we are. It's all different shades. Absolutely. And so yeah. no, and you're right because it is the imago day, and I think I think a lot of the gospel conversations that we got to start with a starting point. In the gospel conversations with millennials has to begin with affirming the imago day. We mm-hmm. have to make millennials understand that one, you are an image bearer of God. Mm-hmm. Like God has shared with you on a finite level mm-hmm. what he shared with every other human being which mm-hmm. is his communicable attribute so he gave you personality spirituality morality rationality the ability mm-hmm. to love show compassion you're not governed by instincts you mm-hmm. don't have an animalistic nature mm-hmm. but but you look at the narrative of our history and our nation mm-hmm. and uh african slaves were treated like animals they mm-hmm. were called three-fifths of an individual um ministers would say that they have no souls mm-hmm. that they're like dogs they'll never get into heaven and this was at revivals mm-hmm. you know and so it's that reality that even if there was a proclamation of the gospel mm-hmm. the praxis of the gospel was withheld mm-hmm. from the african uh american community mm-hmm. for generations in our mm-hmm. nation and so there's a lot of ground that we have to make up and communicate in the truths of god but the one thing i tell people that we have to do especially uh, in communicating to uh, to african-american millennials is we have to deal with the history of our nation Mm -hmm. and the poor gospel stewardship. Mm -hmm. So we look at history. We don't idolize it, but we show don't ignore it. But Mm -hmm. we use it as a launching pad to launch back the reality that you are an image bearer of God. You are separate from the animal kingdom, just Mm -hmm. like every other human being. You are not a plant. You are not an insect. Uh, You're not just some random mass or blob. God has fashioned you, and he has made you in his likeness, which means you're not a replica of God, but you're Mm -hmm. called to represent God in the stewardship of the creation that he's given human beings dominion over and starting the gospel conversation there, then leveraging to the reality, but we're marred. Every single one of us universally has inherited the sin nature from our first common father, Adam. So Mm -hmm. now we're still image bearers, but it's marred and then it sets up the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something about our history that I think is so crucial because I see a lot of black millennials um, in utter disdain when they hear people say, especially in conservative evangelical circles, uh, our country is uh, de- morally deteriorating. And they're like, well, when, <laughs> looking at the history, yes. when have we ever been moral? When they were raping our women or beating us? Now that's real And tough. so mm. there's like, okay, so you're saying now that we've legalized same-sex marriage, we're going to hell in the handbasket. Right. What was happening with slavery? Exactly. Was that not a moral deterioration? Yeah. Was that not the foundation of even the way we treated Native Americans and still do in our country? That's a whole nother aspect yes. of us not being very moral. Yeah. And so when you people kind of look like you're hypocrites, mm-hmm. how are we uh, failing morally now that we've legalized um, same sex marriage? Because um, I got a lot of feedback from that as mm. far as friends that are more that are firm um, same sex marriage. They're right. like, 
So we're we're deteriorating morally because yeah. that. What about slavery? Exactly. And so I think that's like our blind spot, um, not acknowledging the history of America when we say, you know, we're deteriorating morally. Exactly. And I, you know, I would even, I would intersect that everything you said with the the auspice of Christianity. And and what I mean by that is how often those shameful acts mm-hmm. were espoused under the umbrella of the name of Christ mm-hmm. incorrectly. Um, from the realities of discovering the new world missionally to civilize the savage. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and it's just like these are less than human beings mm-hmm. that would be communicated from European immigrants over here to America that were trying to expand under the pretense that th- this is the new land God has given us. And regardless if your nations, not just tribes, but your nations have been civilizing and cultivating uh, in an agrarian format this land we're taking over because mm-hmm. God has given this land to us. So there was this imperialistic mentality that was imposed upon the people that not only are you our subjects, mm-hmm. but we've got to convert you mm-hmm. and we've got to civilize you. And the way you become more civilized is you look like where we're from because mm-hmm. that is the core of civilization. Mm-hmm. But when but when you begin to look at that and you see that pattern through the indigenous Indian nations, or the Native American nations, um, me being Choctaw, I sympathize with that. But at the same time, from the Hispanic land, where I was just reading in uh, uh, Gustavo Guterres' book, Manana, he's talking about the reality of, for Hispanics, for us, uh, me being Mexican, it's like, yo, our land was here, and then our land was taken, and then we were forced and subjugated under the pretense of manifest destiny to believe that God had called these people to take our land and now make us work our land that we used to own the day before, and now we work (laughs) for them. And so it's that reality of... When you introduce that to evangelical circles, mm-hmm. normally the pushback I personally get is, oh, you're bitter. Like, you didn't experience that. Let it go. And I'm like, well, hold on. Time out. Mm-hmm. I'm being honest with history mm-hmm. because I didn't learn this in high school mm-hmm. because it was purposefully excluded from history books. Mm-hmm. But the bad thing about it is, is that most of these things were done under the pretense of Christian terms. Mm-hmm. Like, people used Calvinistic doctrine for manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. Like, God has elected us to take dominion over this new world. And it's like, it's new to you, but it's not new to the civilized nations that have been here for centuries. Mm-hmm. And that's where, at the same time, it gives ethnic minorities, African Americans, Native Americans, Asians, Latinos, an uphill battle in evangelicalism mm-hmm. when we're speaking about these truthful narratives. And how Christianity was misused in the terms, because then that's what turns our generation away. Mm-hmm. White Jesus, Eurocentric philosophy, mm-hmm. like that's the white man's religion. That's why the Moors are successful in the, in the, under the teachings of Drew Ali, where he would say, give Christianity back to Europe. And mm-hmm. we embrace the reality of our native religion, who is Allah and Islam is our way of life. Like mm-hmm. that's the native way of life of those who are indigenous to Africa. So that's why they can say we create a false dichotomy. The white God is the Christian God. The real God is our God. Let them have their God. We come back to our God. Mm-hmm. And and that's what that, that paradigm is sweeping through because we're not dealing rightfully with history and we're not correcting the Christian terms that were abused and mishandled back then and saying, though they use those terms, that was not the biblical reality of what we see God communicating in his word. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You mentioned um, the Morse. Um what other um, movements do you see? I see other movements um, gaining traction, more so uh, black Hebrew Israelites, mm-hmm. the nation of gods and earths, the five percenters, um, they, especially in hip-hop culture and urban culture. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, the five percenters, man, arguably had the greatest stakes in the ground in hip-hop culture in the formative years and the foundational years. Um, and, and when you look at the reality of the ground that they were gaining um, through the evangelistic methods of rap, you know, like mm-hmm. Rakim Allah being probably the most notable one, and you had others, poor righteous teachers and guys like that, um, you know, they, they were coming with dogma and doctrine mm-hmm. that got the ears and then it captured the hearts of a lot of young African-American and Latinos because we were being affirmed in our ethnic identity mm-hmm. as you are God. Like mm-hmm. you are one of the 16 shades of black. If you're mm-hmm. Native American, if you're Asian, if you're Latino, if you're black, you are one of the 16 shades of black. And mm-hmm. you're God. And they had this catechesis that they would walk you through. You're the plant, you're the cream of the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Like the sun, moon, and stars, man, woman, and child. Like they mathematically, the supreme alphabet, they would have all this language and dogma. And they would just basically unpack the narrative of American history. Mm-hmm. And they would say, and this is what the church that is paganized. And they would talk about Constantine. And uh, so there's these constant themes that people would break down. And then they would say, once we broke down the version of Christianity that you nominally nominally know, mm-hmm. now we'll put you up on the real way of life. Mm-hmm. And this is who you are. This is your identity. So they affirm the identity of the individual. I see it happening with black Hebrew Israelites. With all the tensions going on, a lot of brothers are, are filled with angst because they're like, I feel like I've been given a white Christianity. And when people hear that, then people say, why do you got to make it about race? Why has it got to be white? Jesus is, you know, he, he was Hebrew. And so, like, they'll begin to walk through these narratives. And I've talked to countless of young black men that love God, that have embraced Christ. Mm-hmm. But their hearts and their ears are being swayed by black Hebrew Israelites that are approaching them by saying, you are Israel. Mm-hmm. Like, Christianity is wrong. They stole the ethnic identity of who we really are. We are mm-hmm. the 12 tribes. And I know because they came at me when I was 17. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you're Mexican. You're from the tribe of Ishakar. So you're a Sephardic Jew. The white man stole your ethnic identity. Mm-hmm. And you are Israel. And they began to break down. And then they would show me scriptures. And they would they would hit on things like Deuteronomy 28, 68. And they'd be like in the slave ships, you know. Like, like, like from Egypt, man. We were shipped over here. And, da, da, da. and they would just break down all these things. That I never heard a sermon talk about. Mm-hmm. And, and and when I would hear sermons, it would be either A, how to five ways to be a better you, six ways to get your checkbook in check. You know, mm-hmm. it was like things like that that wasn't dealing with the the, the identity issues that I had. Mm-hmm. And then if I began to ask questions, then people would be like, Oh, well in Christ, you know, there's no man, no no female. There's no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no bondsman. And I heard a professor from Park University, Soon Chuck Rai, have the best response I've heard for that. He said, you know, it's amazing to me how people want to quote. When we start dealing with ethnic identity and the reality of who we are ethnically mm-hmm. in Christ as mm-hmm. Christians, the people want to quote Galatians 3.28 mm-hmm. for us to turn our ethnicity off. Not mm-hmm. down, off. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, in Christ, there's no Jew nor Greek. Why well, you got to make it a white, black, brown thing? Mm-hmm. And he says, you know what? When I became a Christian, I didn't become asexual. I didn't cease to being a male when I embrace Christ as my savior. But that mm-hmm. text says there is no man, no female. Mm-hmm. And then he said, you know, I didn't come up three tax brackets when I embraced Jesus as my savior. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm in a whole new socioeconomic class just because Christ is my savior. Mm-hmm. So if my gender didn't turn down or turn off and go away, and if my socioeconomic reality didn't turn off or go away, then why are you forcing my ethnicity to? Mm-hmm. And see, I'm like, man, that's the absolute truth. So mm-hmm. we have to learn to affirm that, man, there is one race, the human race, but God has created a multitude of ethnicities that need to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. We celebrate his diversity. It's not a cause for division. So I think if we start affirming the ethnic identity of believers in Christ 
and showing that in the eternal state, Revelation 7-9, what the Apostle John saw, he saw a multitude mm -hmm. from every nation, tribe, and tongue. There was physical characteristics and distinctives that he saw in individuals. Mm -hmm. So our ethnicity is going to be present in the eternal state. Mm -hmm. So we need to stop, fu uh, stop fussing and fighting over it and be like, yo, God has created you to be who you are. Amen. Don't idolize it. Don't ignore it. But at the same time, celebrate it. Mm -hmm. That's something to be celebrated. When you tell that to black millennials, that might be the first time they ever hear that coming out of a conservative Christian's mouth. Mm -hmm. and, and brothers that are in their 30s, they've been walking with God since their teens, are breaking down, to like crying in tears, like, thank you, bro. Thank you for telling me that. Because this whole time I'm thinking, I got to flush my faith down the toilet because it doesn't speak to me as a black man in America. And I'm like, bro, Christ does. Mm -hmm. And God has elected you to be who you are. Be who you are, man. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, embrace that reality because that job description we all have is to make disciples of every nation every ethnicity literally in the Greek to English mm -hmm. so as we're making disciples of every ethnicity celebrate your ethnicity celebrate those of others but keep the gospel moving man but make it real in the lives of people mm -hmm. I want to um, kind of shift gears because you talked about the hip hop um, what 5% what uh, five, the 5% movement did in hip hop Yeah. do you think that Christian hip hop has been able to do that as far as, uh, how do I want to ask it? How, at the intersection of Christian hip hop, has it had the same effect? Because um, the five percenters um, were able to use hip hop to kind of, you know, get their message across to a, a large demographic. Yeah. Has Christian hip hop been able to duplicate that, you think? I think in some ways, yeah, because. Rappers like Wu-Tang and Busta Rhymes, individuals who profess to have some affiliation or allegiance with the 5% nation, mm -hmm. they made it cool to be a 5%er. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the 5%ers that I would dialogue with would call some of the followers of those rappers mm -hmm. five pretenders. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of, they really ain't part of the nation, they really ain't part of the culture. Not necessarily the rappers, mm -hmm. but the people who were using the language. One thing that hip-hop did is it stole a lot of the language and the culture from the 5% nation. So everything mm -hmm. from drop a bomb on you to dropping science, standing on my square, b-boy. Like, uh, like a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the dogma of early hip-hop was snatched from the culture. So the 5% nation has been exploited in some ways. Mm -hmm. I, I think what they did do is they had a large platform with large rappers during the conscious era from 88 to 92 when mm -hmm. Rakim was big. KRS-One was never like a professing 5%er. He's more mm -hmm. of a conglomerate, if you will. Um, but people began to embrace the dogma and the teachings because it was cool, man, by mm -hmm. the dudes that were on top of the game. Mm -hmm. But as soon as, you know, commercialization of hip-hop happened, a lot of people fell back from the 5% nation they weren't really and so with Christian hip-hop um, I think one thing that has happened is it's expressed uh, a breaking down of um, ethnic walls that mm -hmm. I, that you know secular hip-hop has done as well but I think um, one of the things that I've at least seen from the nation of gods and earths that I really haven't seen in large in Christian hip-hop is a multitude of disciples who know their faith mm -hmm. like when you talk to a five percenter they know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. they, they went through this catechesis. They're disciplined. They will unpack and they will argue and they will make you even be like, dang, I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. But a lot of believers that I've come across, mm -hmm. um, and again, this is my limited scope of uh, engagement with people, man, they're lucky just to read a chapter a day to keep the devil away. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's grown. Like they, they can quote 
their favorite rapper, they can quote John Piper. Mm-hmm. But can they quote the Apostle John? Like it's, it's like wrong wide but not deep. Yeah, I mean, and and, and I think that there's so much potential for us. The reason I say there's so much potential for the Christian hip hop movement is because when I analyze the previous Great Awakenings in America, one of the major obviously missing components from every great awakening in American history is ethnic diversity. Mm-hmm. Ethnic diversity. You look at the second great awakening, the majority of the slaves that were brought by their masters, and you can read this online, Duke Divinity School has done a phenomenal job publishing the slave narratives of that era. Okay. And what they did is they basically said, my master got religion, I got religion, which was a basic way of saying I was converted to Christianity. Mm-hmm. But but they were not allowed in the same tent. They had to sit behind the pulpit. They could barely hear the sermon. Mm-hmm. And if they wanted to make a profession of faith, they couldn't even come down to the same altar as their mm-hmm. slave masters. And a lot of the slaves said that when their master got religion, they didn't treat them any better. If not, they treated them worse. And then they forced them to go to church on Sunday. I mean, so it's like you see that and, and you read about this in theological books and it's called the Second Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the most modern one, which I would argue is the Jesus movement, and it was predominantly Anglo hippie, mm-hmm. and that that was the demographic that they were reaching. But now, when I look at the Christian hip hop movement, I see people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. I see Asian kids rocking one one six tattoos. I hear uh, Hispanic kids quoting Flame. I mm-hmm. hear African American kids quoting KJ five two. Like it's mm-hmm. like yo, like this is this is bug. Like 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 there's something here. Mm-hmm. But I think that it it's I mean, and that's one thing I kind of have. Uh, a heart for now is man Christian hip hop is arguably 30 years old now mm-hmm. it was it was probably birthed in 85 with Stephen Wiley and the Bible break and all that but here we are 30 years and I'm like what systemic change have we mobilized to make in large in our cities we ain't put a dent on our cities but I think it's in large part because of the larger Christian hip hop artists are are really into um uh I don't want to say it. This the neo reformation kind mm-hmm. of idea. Yeah. Neo reformed. Yeah. And so, in large part, you're reading books from white evangelicals telling you how to reach mm. people. So you end up when I when I go to a lot of Christian hip hop concerts, it's just white suburban kids. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that I meet, African Americans in the hood, don't even know who Christian hip hop yeah. artists are. So it's kind of like I'm reaching the I'm. Uh, I may be a minority, but I'm still reaching primarily white. And so how am I going to change the narrative in the black community yeah. if I'm my primary listeners, while I may be going up on the charts, they're not the demographic that I aim to reach in the first place. Yeah, and that's interesting because I'll, I'll give a little pushback on that because when I was on tour with Reach in 2012, when I had just taken over um, as executive director of Reach Life, I put out a survey and we had over 5,000 people in the 28 cities fill out the survey Mm -hmm. and it was a 51 ethnic minority versus 49% Anglo Mm -hmm. individuals that filled it out and the the, the majority of the shows actually were predominantly minority now now the few cities that we did have a few minorities was like in Pittsburgh um, and um, in Alabama and there was a but 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 for the most part in most of the cities like Detroit, Chicago, Kansas City, it was mixed crowds mm-hmm. and it was predominantly um, minorities. But but that and no uh, no pun on the word that that was an anomaly because <laughs> because um, just with, with God's grace and what He's done with Lecrae um, and what He's done with the guys at Reach is that they have that pull from from the different um, how can I say it the different. Um, the different communities outside the the inner cities that mm-hmm. they're from, and and it's just a series of God's providences. But one thing I did learn is that um, and that 
in that experience while we were out on that run in 2012, I had the same presupposition that I was like, it's just like white suburban kids. But then when I began to talk to people and I began to see dudes and I began to dialogue with families that were coming like mm-hmm. to the concerts, I was like, how did y'all hear? And man, they've been riding since T-Bone was rapping in 93, 94. And I'm like, dang, for real? <laughs> and I'm like, what? And they're like, y'all just want to show support. But then what I began to recognize is the follow-up mm-hmm. that was not happening is that same integration of the concert was not happening in the churches. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel like is the frontier for our movement is to be committed to the local church and to see integration become a reality in our churches. Do you think it's because just Sunday morning being still one of the most segregated times in America and then it's when people think of Christian hip hop they think of youth ministry. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You have yeah. to break that down that walls too. Yeah. Because I always tell people church is like a business. So <laughs> yeah. you know, they're gonna say what's going what's gonna appeal to my Sunday demographic. Yeah. It's cool for Saturday night, Friday night get the young people there but I'm not going to bring I think their teaching is good for the youth but what they're teaching the adults need to hear too yeah absolutely and I can't flush that out and to make it integrate with my church yeah if I'm not giving that to the people on Sunday yeah and see and that's where I would say yes and amen that's that's the status quo but I think the way that we change it is it's a systemic change that we have to that we have to employ Mm -hmm. and the first thing that I always leverage it back to is that we got to see Christian hip-hop is not just the rappers that we listen to. Mm-hmm. Christian hip-hop is a movement of urbanites that have been redeemed by God that want to advance His glory in our cities. Mm-hmm. And so now that takes it from a few hundred rappers to a few tens of thousands of supporters. Mm-hmm. And if we can mobilize those supporters mm-hmm. to understand, one, God has already called every Christian to missions work. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about wrestling, God, am I called? Yeah, because when He saved you, you got the Great Commission. Every Single Christian has the same job description, the Great Commission. So now that he's already answered that question, now the real question you have to ask is where and how. And so that's where we begin to ask God. I put my yes on the table. Lord, you put my yes on the map. And so if we can begin to empower the people of the Christian hip-hop movement to see themselves as missionaries equally to the rappers, Mm -hmm. I think the detriment of Christian hip-hop right now is that we've spent the majority of our focus on missional activity only being in arts and entertainment. Mm -hmm. But what about social justice what about um education reform what about um man mass incarceration like Mm -hmm. what about what about just being school teachers that live unashamed for jesus christ Mm -hmm. being lawyers being doctors being baristas being barbers like why don't we plant barber shops in the hood of unashamed barbers who Mm -hmm. are killing it for the lord Mm -hmm. and at the same time they're excellent in their craft and they're doing it for the Lord's glory while pushing back darkness clicked up in the local church in their community and if we can mobilize christian hip-hop to see itself beyond being defined by Lecrae or John Rubin or <clears throat> Grits or whoever they want to, you know, say is the, the rappers. Mm-hmm. Yes, amen. The rappers have a small part to play. Mm-hmm. But the mass, uh, the critical mass, if we can mobilize that critical mass mm-hmm. to be committed to local churches and living out their faith incarnationally, then we'll see the demographics that are not reformed, if you will, mm-hmm. not European red, that they will begin to see, yo, there's Christians that look like me that are standing with me to argue down these issues from a biblical perspective and we're living in fellowship together. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that's the gospel's implications being lived out. Mm -hmm. So my goal is to not see rappers mobilized. It's to see the supporters of the rappers mobilized. How do you think that uh, the Christian hip-hop artists can 
help mobilize. Um, pointing to pastors that are solid, mm -hmm. pointing to practitioners and authors that are writing on topics that are pertinent, stretching the opinions of people mm -hmm. to get out of a framework that is so enclosed and narrow-minded that they're not hearing the other side of the argument. Mm -hmm. um, that it's, it's the conservative liberal rift, and we mm -hmm. see it in our in our generation as well. If, mm -hmm. if conservatives are not willing to dialogue with liberals about issues like what we were talking about before we hit the record button, then... <laughs> Our generation is going to pick up the same thing where the previous generation left off. Mm -hmm. If we're going to use titles as a way to segregate ourselves, liberal, conservative, red, blue. I mean, that's what Kendrick Lamar, when he talked about Republicans and Democrats, mm -hmm. like, I'm like, that's that's right. That's how our generation views it, mm -hmm. is that when we look at politics, I don't trust none of them because mm -hmm. it's both gangbanging. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing to, to millennials, black, brown, white, yellow, is the fact that, okay, this gang is called the SBC. That gang is called Kojic. That gang is called uh, PCUSA. That gang is PCA. And you begin to recognize that it's just denominational gangbanging. And, and, and I get to know people by caricatures. Exactly. And that's where it's a turnoff. Mm -hmm. But what we can do is begin to have dialogues. Like, that's one thing I think that guys like Abraham Kuyper, who was a statesman that just murked it in the Netherlands when he employed what he called principal, para, uh, principal uh, parallelism. Francis Schaeffer, who was kind of pushing uh, the, the conversations to begin to think through what does it look like to partner with an enemy when mm -hmm. we have a common enemy. So the whole idea of co-belligerence. And see, when I think through that, and I think of even stuff that Tupac said, I mean, I probably just lost half the list of all this when I'm <laughs> referencing Tupac. But you know, with Tupac, man, like, the reason Tupac spoke to me is I felt like he spoke for me mm -hmm. when I was, when I was, you know, 15, 14, 13, 16 years old. And it's the reality of the stuff that he was hitting on. Tupac's plan for community transformation, he was talking about co-belligerence. Now, he wasn't doing it from a gospel-centered perspective. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's some unrealized ecclesiology of Tupac Shakur that a lot of conservatives and even myself for a large length of my walk in Christ, I wouldn't even consider his assessment of the church mm -hmm. simply because of his caricature. Mm -hmm. Even though I listened to his lyrics, it, it's unregenerate and a regenerate believer and was mm -hmm. like, yo, man, he's saying some things. I had it in this mindset that I had to write off and throw the baby out with the bathwater mm -hmm. if it did not line up theologically. And Tom Skinner had a phenomenal Urbana talk in 1970 when he said the same thing. I promise you, if you YouTube Tom Skinner's Urbana 1970, you listen to his talk, mm -hmm. you you would close your eyes and swear he's talking today because he talked about how a lot of conservatives would go in on the theology of Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. They would question his salvation. Mm -hmm. Also, they didn't have to accept his social assessment. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing today. Yeah. Okay, if you're not reformed, if you're not covenantal, if you're not dispensational, if you're not fundamental, if you're not, if you're not this, if you're not this, or who's your covering, who's your anointing? Like it's, it's all this <laughs> language that we use on both sides, and it's like I'm going to write you off so that I don't have to accept responsibility for how I even contributed directly or indirectly to that which you are personifying right now because I can't get with that on my side. And then there's a sense of hypocrisy even in how we talk about heretics. You say even when you're talking about MLK, the first thought that came to my mind is it's cool for conservatives to quote MLK right now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it depends. Can I can I say one thing right mm -hmm. quick? The MLK of I Have a Dream. Mm -hmm. That's the one they want. The 1963. They don't mm -hmm. want the one in 1967 to 68 when he was talking about my dream became a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And when he started turning his attention to the Vietnam War and the poverty system, mm -hmm. when he talked about integrating the luncheonettes and integrating the bus system. America's economy boosted because of that. Mm -hmm. We gave y'all money. That's why y'all ain't fighting about that no more. You ain't mm -hmm. got no problem with integration in those spheres. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about housing, mm 
equal housing, when we're talking about unemployment in the black communities, when we're talking about the deinstitute or the uh, the uh, sending our factories overseas mm-hmm. uh, because they don't have unions over there, and seventy percent of African American men were working that blue collar labor, and mm-hmm. by nineteen eighty four it was only twenty eight percent of them. Mm-hmm. That high rise of unemployment, then the introduction of crack cocaine, the drug war on drugs, all that. You look at all that, and it's like he was starting to speak on that. Mm-hmm. And that's when that's when America got uncomfortable. You don't hear a lot of theologians that I've known of that I've walked with and talked to quote from the latter MLK. Mm-hmm. They want the superficial language of the "I have a dream" MLK. So I, I just I just had to say that because I'd be <laughs> no, like, "Yo, good, yeah." That's so a good, uh, portion, but I noticed the hypocrisy in even the heretic off because it's kind of like I could quote MLK, but. I would not agree with his theology, but you quote somebody that I don't agree with. Oh, you're going with a heretic, but yeah. you just quote MLK, who in your mind, Is you would yeah. say the same thing. That's so, so good. So we need to be consistent on all fronts and then take responsibility, like you said, for, you know, the things that we have um, kind of caused in a sense. Yeah. We look at people really go on in on a prosperity gospel, but you have, we're not talking about ethnic economic empowerment so when you have a lack of economic empowerment and you have a preacher promising them if they believe they can have access to something they wouldn't have access to um had the their faith not gave them special access to it that's contributing because you can't speak against the prosperity gospel if you're not going to help with the systemic um problems that african-americans face no i i co-sign that 100 percent. and i even i was talking to a a a gatekeeper pastor in kansas city where i'm from and he got up and he had been pastoring for 35 years he just retired and he was in a room with a lot of seminary professors and presidents Mm -hmm. it was a small meeting and he said you know we used to preach jesus in the black church Jesus was our comfort. Jesus was everything. And then when the conservative seminaries kept refusing to let our black men be admitted as students, Mm -hmm. and the liberal seminaries, as they're called by conservatives, you know, opened, armed, welcomed us, then you turned your back on us when we started getting our MDivs and our PhDs because of the methods of higher criticisms that we were taught to use and interpret in the scriptures. So you wouldn't get with us mm-hmm. before we were educated mm-hmm. and you wouldn't let us be educated in your system. Mm-hmm. And now that we've been educated in a system that's anti your system, mm-hmm. now you want to employ your hermeneutics and your system on us to judge us and hold us at bay. Mm-hmm. And he said, and the thing we got to fight back to is just get back to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But he said, but it's a long hill battle. Mm-hmm. Because the two the two sides don't want to get together. Because who am I going to trust? The person who opened his arms to me or the person that excluded me? Yeah. You want me to take your orthodoxy when your orthopraxy is, exactly. is bad. And, and that's where, in, in sometimes, in some situations, I even feel like, and, and, and like, especially when it comes to, like, um, people have asked me, you know, takes on the homosexual um, movement and, and comparing that to the civil rights. And, and I spoke on that on a panel at the ERLC. And similar approach that I feel like even black scholars have been exploited just for the fact that they had black voices mm-hmm. um, for whatever the agenda was from the person who educated them or whatever. I feel like they've exploited some black voices. Same for Latino voices as well, that they've been exploited just to say that we have the other ethnicities on our side of this argument. I felt like even individuals have done that with the homosexual movement when people have said, why is 
why do you da why do you say that gay is not the new black and i'm like man with all sensitivity and all respect due when i look at the reality of what happened to end reconstruction Mm -hmm. when i look at the reality of jim crow and even the new jim crow like when michelle alexander beautifully broke down in her book Mm -hmm. it's that reality of i have not seen a homosexual be denied the right to vote because of a poll tax Mm -hmm. i haven't seen them go to a homosexual only water fountain Mm -hmm. like i feel like the homosexual community has been given rights and privileges. They have the right to marry, but they want to redefine what that means. Mm-hmm. And so I said, but the reality of what we see in the African-American struggle from a civil rights perspective, it's apples and oranges. And mm-hmm. I'm like, it's apples and oranges. And they still get preference over African-Americans, even in their struggle, because it's predominantly a struggle led by white people, yeah, yeah. honestly, and, and white people with privilege and money. And their agenda gets pushed ahead of ours because of that aspect so it's still we're still oppressed in that sense in that aspect that's why i feel like it's exploitation Mm -hmm. and at the core root of the reality is i know people will disagree with you know when i said the gay is not the new black i know people will disagree with well liberals and conservatives they, they haven't been able to sit down here's the end of the day when i look at the hope of the narrative of the gospel Mm -hmm. the gospel transcends all cultures the Mm -hmm. gospel transcends all orientations sinful self-righteous everything and the church has to continue to be the church and we have to not be fearful to segregate ourselves from these conversations that the world around us is having Mm -hmm. the conversations the black millennials are having latino millennials are having major marketing and advertising is capitalizing on that Mm -hmm. because they're pushing products to our people Mm -hmm. so why can we as believers not we're not pushing a marketable thing on them. We're like we're trying to give you the words of life, the hope of Christ, the exclusivity exclusivity of salvation that's found through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. When a believer says that, we have now ostracized ourselves from the rest of the world's population. What mm-hmm. we are making is an exclusive claim mm-hmm. that we carry in sole possession as the church of Jesus Christ the only message of hope for this world mm-hmm. and all of the systemic fracturedness. But the reality of it is, is it's not just a gospel proclamation that the church has to give. It's a gospel presence. Mm-hmm. That's what we need to show. We need to show snapshots of heaven that when we see the ethnicities coming together, when we see the generations coming together, the socioeconomic classes, when we see people who have been saved by Christ worshiping together, mm-hmm. one mind, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're showing the world around us, no matter how dark it gets, the culture, no matter uh, whether people agree that it's now just getting in more decay, like you say, but I would argue it's been that way since Jump Street. It's that reality of this, that the light of the gospel shines best when contrasted with the darkness of the ways of the sinful, evil system of the world. That's Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3, for the death sentence of this world, but Verses 4 through 10, being made alive in Christ. Man, let us see people made alive in Christ through gospel proclamation, intentional discipleship, and more multi-ethnic churches, man. Like, mm-hmm. that's my plea. That's what we're that's what we're trying to do in L.A., man, mm-hmm. is that myself being Mexican, my other brother that's going to serve as a pastor is African-American, and my other brother is Samoan. Like, we're going into the area of South L.A., North Long Beach, with the intention to say, this is what a snapshot of heaven looks like. And mm-hmm. we will be engaged with the gospel mm-hmm. intersecting against police brutality, against poverty, broken education systems, broken family systems, mm-hmm. gender confusion. The reality of every sinful uh, reality, we want to show how the gospel speaks to it, but show people in real time, these are saints that still have issues and still have struggles. And we're able to march on forward with the gospel showing 
this is what it looks like to be progressively sanctified when the Spirit of God lives inside you, giving the extension of the call for salvation. Amen. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to give you the last word. What do you want to leave with our listeners in reference to um, Christian hip-hop, apologetics, millennials, uh, multi ethnic churches. What, what, <laughs> I, I mean, that's a, we're, a all over the place. we're all over the place. But what do you want to leave without this? I would say this. Um, I would say, and hear my heart. I don't really bang with the title reconciliation, racial mm-hmm. reconciliation. I, I I prefer the term ethnic conciliation, and, mm-hmm. and this is my apologetic for it. And this is what I want to leave the listeners with. Racial reconciliation to me is something. Um, that, that people are trying to work for, but 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 they can never achieve for one for for two reasons. One, when we look at the reality of race, I look at the scriptures and Adam names Eve Eve because she's the mother of all living. So we all got the same mama. You look at Acts seventeen, when Paul is at the Areopagus and he talks through the reality that from one man, God brought the bloodline of the nations from that one dude. So we all got the same dad. It's Adam. So Adam and Eve. By God was used to propagate one human race. So I see that there's one race. The term race as we know it today is something that man has created to divide and segregate to keep a hold on demographics, arguably. And so the reality of us having more than one race to me is is, is fictitious. There's multitudes of ethnicity. So there's ethnic diversity. There's not racial diversity. There's one race. So it's racial harmony. But we're made up of different ethnicities that need to be celebrated, not divided over. So that's the racial part. The reconciliation part is in America, in our history, I've yet to see, and again, it could be evading me in history books somewhere, but I've yet to see a point of conciliation for the ethnicities here in America. I don't see it in mass. It's nowhere. So how can we be reconciled when we've never had a point of conciliation? So I then say, instead of racial, put the term ethnic, and instead of reconciliation, conciliation. So ethnic conciliation is seeing the masses of ethnic diversified people groups, languages, tribes, and tongues coming together consolidated to work in harmony to be in unity not uniformity we'll all become a melting pot or we're all the same color that's not going to happen and god created us different and distinct with our ethnicities for a reason so we celebrated but we mobilize as a unified front and to me that unified front is the church it's jesus christ it's his body so i believe that our generation can be the generation to to introduce the american landscape ethnic conciliation because the gospel transcends all cultures Every ethnicity now has an open access to Jesus Christ for salvation, and together we can mark through our personal differences. We look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Christ has tore down every wall of hostility that man or society could build, and so we are one in Christ. So we celebrate our differences, celebrate the diversity ethnically, socioeconomics, uh, gender-wise, but it's that reality that we come to Christ, He is our Savior, and now we mobilize as a unified front to show the world this is what it looks like. This is a snapshot of heaven. This is what it's going to look like. Racism does not exist in heaven. Segregation does not exist in heaven. This is a reality of the gospel's power. And I think that's what our generation can do. Amen. Well, thank you so much, DA, for agreeing to be on the Jude 3 podcast with us. I'm encouraged by this conversation. Thank you, sis. And I think it's going to be fruitful for the people that hear it. So, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to another edition of the Jude 3 Project podcast. Um, as always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. Check out our blog. Um, subscribe to us on iTunes by searching Jude3Project. Follow us on Twitter at Jude3Project, on Instagram at Jude3Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Jude3Project. And remember, at the Jude3Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.